This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 92. Today we speak with Bill Dennison about Paul's two-age construction and apologetics. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we want to thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me now Nick Batzig, who's church planter in Richmond Hill, Georgia, with the PCA. How are you doing, Nick? Great. How are you, Camden? Excellent. We also have Jim Cassidy, who is uh, the pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. It's great to have you back, Jim. It's good to be back, Hamden. Thanks. Yeah, we've got a great discussion lined up today because we're speaking with Bill Dennison, who's professor of interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He's also visiting professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Northwest Theological Seminary in Linwood, Washington. Bill, it's great to have you back with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate the invitation, gentlemen. Yeah, so we're very uh, interested and excited today, and there's a kind of a funny story behind this, because we did speak with Bill uh, several months ago about his book on Rudolf Bultmann, and uh, there was a mix-up in our scheduling, and we we uh, we uh, uh, were under the impression we were going to speak about Bultmann, but we screwed up in our communication, so Bill was under the impression we were going to be speaking about this other book, which Paul's Two-Age Construction and Apologetics, and when we started the interview, we started talking about Bultmann, and, and Bill did such a nice job in scrambling and getting his book and getting his thoughts collected that we didn't even know that he was expecting to talk about Paul's two-age construction. <laughs> that is correct. But we said, oh, shoot, and today we're so excited to have him back to actually talk about it. I'm holding it in my hands, Paul's two-age construction and apologetics, a book that's now available from Whip and Stock Publishers. It was initially a THM thesis at Westminster Theological Seminary, and that is our subject of discussion today. I just want to get started by uh, just kicking things off by speaking about Paul's two-age construction, which is a very deep and rich eschatological structure that Paul uses throughout all of his letters. You also find it heavily in, in uh, the Apostle John and, and Jesus' own words. It's, it's, a, it's an important structure for understanding the entire Bible. Uh, now, Bill, can you uh, give us just a real brief overview of what the two-age construction is? Uh, what is this age and the age to come, and how, how do those two relate to each other in, in the mind of Paul? Yeah, uh, what's going on here is because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul understands, of course, that we have uh, entered already into uh, the eschatological kingdom of heaven, or if you wish, what he would call, what he can refer to as the age to come. Uh, that is that, that our status or our state of existence in union with Christ in the heavenly places. Uh, that is, that is one aspect on which we have our, what I like to always refer to as our faith union with Christ in the heavenly places. We have already entered into the heavenly glories of, of the Lord Jesus Christ with Him. Now, also, in terms of that, we still continue to abide in this creation, and therefore we still, in terms of this world, there is the present evil age that continues until the, uh, the second coming of Christ. The present evil age can be characterized as the union of ourselves in terms of Adam's first sin. And so, uh, thinking here of our union with Adam in respect to Romans 5 and the fall. So that age, of course, is going that, excuse me, as we, as the, uh, uh, we have this very uh, interesting kind of uh, concept that theologians use of this. We are in the already, but the not yet. We are already in heavenly glory but there's a sense in which that has not been obviously completely consummated as we continue as pilgrims and as children of exile 
here on this earth uh, and uh, in, as we endure the present evil age. Of course, we still have, in terms of our own nature, we have uh, our union with Adam, but the point of the, of the first Adam, excuse me, with Gen- in Genesis, uh, with respect to being fallen, but we now are uh, in union uh, with the second Adam, and which, in a sense, dominates and, and, and carries us into the heavenly places, Christ Jesus, our priest, our king, and our prophet. And so, and that characterizes us in terms of the age to come. I would argue, I would argue that Paul's position is that we are not citizens, not citizens of two different ages. We belong, the possessive, we belong to the age to come. We are in Christ and we are of Christ. And uh, therefore, uh, that is how Christians should see our citizenship. According to Paul in Philippians 3.20, we should see our citizenship in heaven. We do not see our citizenship even as we exist here in the still in terms of the present evil age. We do not see our citizenship at on earth. So uh, I hope that's helpful. And, oh, yeah. uh, that gives some kind of a brief overview with that, that respect. Oh, one other thing in terms of the question you asked, the two king, the, the, these two ages or kingdom aspects, aspects are, are, um, uh, are antithetical to each other. Oh, yes. They're, they're an antithetical relationship to each other. Uh, one is, of course, it, what we're doing here is the two ages, the present evil age and the age to come, has some type of anticipatory relationship all the way back to Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there's only the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And so that's the continuation of this until Christ comes again. And some uh, some of our... Uh our staunch Fantillions out there are already catching a drift for where we're going to head with this discussion. But before we get there, uh, and, and this two age relation to, uh, the particular discipline of apologetics, I wanted to ask you about the backgrounds to the two age structure. And when you start off this, this book, I really liked how you treated this, but you, you speak about the platonic world of forms the two the two worlds that Plato proposes, and then you also get into Jewish apocalyptic literature. Um, could you just describe a little bit of the background of this two-age structure and how it's actually different from what Paul is teaching? Yeah, what, what happens here, uh, what I was trying to do uh, in a thesis, which is not a dissertation, right. it's not as expansive as a dissertation, I was trying to at least find something that uh, had some type of an analogy, had some type of analogy uh, in the secular world, and also also carried on in terms of uh, maybe in, with respect to the Jewish uh, uh, tradition, with the influence to the Christian to Christian theology. So the question is, what I did with with Plato is basically his view of two, uh, maybe we could call them uh, uh, two views of, of, of the world or two, two worlds in his position, the form world and the, the everyday empirical world. Now, the question would be, is there anything that draws an analogy to those, those two kingdoms in which, uh, uh, in which Plato constructs to that which is uh, Paul is constructing? Now, of course, your audience, as well as, uh, as you three gentlemen would understand, is there is a strong tradition in the history of Christianity of what is called neo-Platonic yeah. thought, or neo-Platonic uh, thought and its influence on, on Christianity. We even know that in the great, in the great Augustine. Uh, a theme that many scholars have tried to unpack and go through. And there are many that, that are even trying to do it again, even now, with the radical uh, orthodox. Uh, and- I, I can believe that that is true. That is exactly right. And you have also, I think it's in the 17th century, this group of, 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 of Cambridge Platonists mm-hmm. that arose uh, in England. 
uh, that we're revising this. And you have even, interestingly, as you know, in the quote in the first chapter, uh, uh, Shedd's endorsement of a man by the name of Ackerman's view in the, in, uh, in the 19th century of, of a kind of synthesis uh, of understanding uh, uh, the Christian, what is commonly done is that the form world becomes the basic equivalent to heaven, with the empirical world being the empiric is, is our world here. Well, uh, when you start to investigate more seriously uh, the two, two, the construct, let's put the construct of Plato's position, when you start to investigate that more clearly, you start to understand, understand that it does not have an association with uh, the Christian understanding of the present evil age and the age to come. Um, and uh, it, because basically uh, Plato's construction is based on the concept of what is real, what is an appearance, uh, and the analogy between a real world out there and a world that is before you in terms of appearance, appearance, the empirical world of opinion. And in those two worlds also, probably more importantly, I don't want to get into this in great depth, but what I will at least bring something clearly to mind, and that is in the age uh, with respect to Plato's form world, matter is eternal. Mm-hmm. Matter is eternal. So does so when you start drawing these analogies between possibly the Christian faith, the form world of of of, of uh, Plato's um, uh, form world is associated with the Christian view of heaven. You've got a form world that is independent, independent, so to speak of God himself, the mm-hmm. creator God of Plato, which is the Demiurge. The Demiurge creates the world here on the basis of what he already sees in the form world. He's independent and separate from the form world. And so that is quite, that's quite uh, different <laughs> from the biblical notion concerning a fiat creation of God himself, uh, by God himself, a sovereign God in scripture. And, uh, so, and, uh, and the dependence, God does not look at another world and then create this world. Right. Uh, you see, that type of thing. So that in itself points to an antithetical relationship between the platonic conception or structure as we find in scripture. Now, there is some truth in terms of the apocalyptic literature or in the intertestimonial period that some of this language obviously starts to appear. The concept of, a pre- of an age, a present age, and so forth. But in the problem that I point out in that area, so that it would be easy for us to say that, and for some people like Kaysman, you know, is saying that the apocalyptic literature is the mother of Christian theology. Well, you see, is that thesis correct or incorrect? Well, even his own liberals and people in liberal circles have attacked Kaysman on that position as well. Because, you see, when you start to, again, investigate, you start to investigate the very uh, structure of the apocalyptic literature with respect to eschatology, how it uses the term eon in its literature, you discover that it's somewhat, it's definitely antithetical to what Paul is saying. For example, you start thinking of the the inconsistencies in apocalyptic literature uh, with respect to the kingdom of God. What is it going to mean? Is it going to mean uh, a, a spiritual kingdom, or is it going to be a political kingdom? Uh, as it, is it provisionary, or is it eternal? What is going on? Is it, is it earthbound, or is it heavenbound? So you, when you start investigating this, and what I map out in the book, is that there is contradictions as well, within this, within the literature itself, and is why is in terms of the Protestant tradition, uh, we do not accept these books 
as part of Scripture. There's a reason for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, so, uh, and, and so as we look at uh, uh, the apocalyptic literature and, 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 and sort of put it over uh, with the New Testament literature, I think good scholarship here points out the fact that the kingdom that Paul and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ inaugurates, that Paul uh, uh, gives us an exposition about that, that these things are, um, that these, this construction is antithetical uh, to the real uh, apocalyptic literature. Even though some of the language, they're picking up on some of the language that is being used uh, in, in the apocalyptic literature, for example, eon, and some of the connotations of cosmos. Yeah, that Doctor- kind of thing. Dr. Dennison, for the sake of our listeners, and I, I know this is sidetracking us a bit, but I was wondering if you could talk about the issue of flesh and spirit in the New Testament. I know, I, I guess it was Ritterboss that, that wants to see, and even Voss to a degree in Pauline eschatology that wants to talk about flesh and spirit as sort of redemptive historical transitions and also as present realities in this two-age um, construct. I don't know if that's a clear enough statement. Could you talk about how you understand flesh and spirit used uh, specifically, I guess, in Galatians, just briefly for our listeners who may not be familiar with this whole discussion? Yes, uh, I, I, can, I can do that uh, uh, briefly. I think it's in chapter three for your listeners if yeah. they're interested in terms of the book. Uh, we map that out. Uh, as you know, Ritterboss has a good discussion. I believe Voss does as well, and um, and uh, and so forth. But the idea, the idea here is that the term flesh, uh, and also it's sort of, of um, in some ways synonymous term in some connotations, body, flesh and body. Uh, we have a tendency sometimes in some of our circles, I knew I grew up with this idea, is almost, matter of fact, you almost have a conception of a platonic conception. Exactly. And, and that is that the, uh, and in some Christian circles, that's exactly what it is. And so that you just look at uh, basically the body uh, or flesh as almost the, as we see it, the empirical flesh or body that we have. Now, that, that use is in the New Testament, but what uh, you're asking and what you're pushing for is that Paul, more richer use of the concept of the flesh, uh, and the more, um, as Dick Gaffin pointed out when I was his student of his, is the more dominant position of Paul's use of the word flesh is yes. a continuity, uh, is the continuity or the connection of it depicting our union with the first Adam and its sin. So it carries with it, you see, this whole eschatological dimension of an age in which we need to be redeemed from. And therefore, in contrast to that, is the spirit, is the spirit. And, uh, and, and so in the spirit... The spirit is being lifted up in terms of the age to come, our union with Christ, the second Adam. And so the, so the flesh and the, and the spirit does battle, of course. It does battle in terms of our identity, our union with Adam, and in a sense, Satan, uh, uh, Satan's um, uh, uh, quest of him. And our union, in terms of we are uh, our children of the evil one, in the sense, in the sense uh, of that first fall, and then at the same time that is broken by the second Adam, and thus the spirit that is really strong uh, in First Corinthians two, uh, in terms of this uh, this distinction, and uh, and a very important antithetical distinction that is definitely eschatological in and in, in terms of age. It's, it's, it's very important, it's very important to grasp that uh, in terms of Paul, because what you will become is, you must understand the reader, uh, uh, excuse me, what we under, need to understand, the listener and so forth, in, in terms of this, is that we must understand 
that the individual, our individual must always be understood in terms of history, in terms of the events of scripture, you see. So you as one who is in the flesh, <laughs> you are in the flesh, you are in the flesh in terms of your union with Adam's first fall. Right. We can't, we can't, we can't underestimate that. Well, I could go on a <laughs> on a win <laughs> now good. on neo Calvinism, but anyway, <laughs> that could be another day. <laughs> but anyways, the 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 idea of that that's extremely important in terms of of that uh, uh, understanding our identity. Also, in terms of that first Adam and fall and our union with him, and yes. because therefore we understand the greatness of the grace and the gift of grace that comes in redemptive history uh, with respect to the spirit and Christ who renews our spirit. And so there's the, that's the battle that the scripture uh, portrays, the flesh and spirit battle is a battle that is grounded in history in two events, the first Adam and the second Adam. Absolutely. Hey, hey Bill, um, if I could preface my next question just with a um, uh, personal anecdote. I remember picking up your book at the Westminster Library. I guess I was a second-year seminary student, and I was learning about apologetics and Van Til, and I was also learning a little bit about biblical theology and Gerhardus Voss, and people had said that Voss and Van Til were friends and all that. And I, I always wondered, leading up to that point, if there was a connection, uh, a conceptual theological connection between Voss and then Van Til's distinct presuppositional apologetics. And, and I picked up your book, and it answered that question. Um, and oftentimes you get um, if people, they say they like Voss, but they don't really like Van Til, or people say they like Van Til, but don't really like Voss. And uh, in my mind, because I read your book, um, the two really do go hand in hand. And maybe this is a transition question for you. Um, how does the antithesis that is found within the two-age construction of Paul's eschatology uh, inform the antithesis that is uh, so central to Van Til's presuppositional apologetics. That's a, that's an excellent question. Let me let me respond by this. I do not remember the exact date, but in the eighties, uh, before Van Til's death, he made a visit into Grand Rapids, and uh, this has to be somewhere around eighty three or eighty four. 1983 or 1984, and he, he, he was uh, given the pulpit of the small OP church in Grand Rapids at the time. At the time, it was called the Grig Street Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It is now Harvest OPC in Grand Rapids. Um, Van Til Kane, uh, he would come up and visit uh, Hattie DeWard at times, his dear friend, uh, you may know the story of that. Your listeners may not know. But John DeWard was an OPC minister, and, uh, and Hattie, his wife, uh, John DeWard, um, um, and Van Til were the ones who performed the funeral of Voss and were at the grave, at the grave site. Um, and so they were both very, very close friends of a boss. Now, he came up to Grand Rapids and, and, uh, and Bob, Reverend Bob Borger and the session allowed him to have the pulpit on a Sunday night. That church could only hold, it was a little inner city church taken over from the mission, uh, from, a, from the uh, Burton Heights Christian Reformed Church. The OPC bought that, uh, for that Greek Streets church and it was a mission church in the inner city that only could sit 90 people. There were over, they estimate, over 200 and some people, 250 people there that night to hear Van Til preach. It was phenomenal. <laughs> and, um, and in that, I finally got to hear, uh, he preached, a professor at Westminster Seminary, I always thought, you have to hear Van Til preach on Noah sometime. Well, 
I'd never actually, even in times of Philadelphia, I think Van Til only preached a few times when I was at Glenside. <laughs> and and uh, But anyways, he preached on Noah that night. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he preached and on Noah also, all the time. <laughs> and also, he gave the pastoral. He gave the pastoral. He gave the pastoral prayer, and the pastoral prayer and his sermon on Noah basically did the same thing. It went from Genesis three to Revelation. Hmm. In what way? In terms of the antithesis. Right. Right. And I said, "There you are." <laughs> there you are. There's the influence of Voss. Well, that's the question. I mean, people yeah, wonder. And and yeah, yeah. No, no. Yeah, you know, I asked Van Til in the library one day personally, and uh, everybody, everybody who knows anything about Van Til and is honest about Van Til knows this. Mm, uh, and that is that Van Til made no uh, bones about it that. Gerhardus Voss was the most influential person on his life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what he And said. in his theology as oh, well. Yeah. In his theo- now in his theology. Now that's where it, now it's, we want to be we want to be cautious here cuz I'll give you a second second antidote on this. And that is is the fourth chapter of the book of my book is somewhat of a criticism of Van Til that he didn't actually apply Voss consistently into his apologetic. Hmm. Okay? The reason is that Van Til, really in the final analysis, in terms of the antithesis, places everything in terms of Romans one twenty-five. Yeah. That is the creator-creature distinction. Okay. He doesn't have a fir- as firm a grasp of applying and criticizing his opponents start, and I'm talking here about all the way back to the Greeks, you know, Parmenides. <laughs> we always start with Parmenides. <laughs> okay. um, it, and he, he doesn't have as firm a grasp of, imp- of explicitly is the term I want, of unpacking and criticizing his opponents on the basis of eschatological redemptive history, although it is always implicit, mm-hmm. in a sense, in his consciousness. That's what I'm getting at in the, in the fourth chapter. And what's interesting there is... Um, at the time, at the time, it was interesting that I didn't understand some of the dynamics playing, but some of the people at, uh, in terms of, at, at Westminster Seminary at the time in Philadelphia, were wanting to find things that were critical of Van Til. So I didn't realize that some people, in terms of the faculty there, were very much applauding what was I was being said in the fourth chapter, with different reasons why I was <laughs> looking uh-huh. at this and how I was looking at it. All I wanted was is, is is to try to be more consistent with Van Til. Now I can only give you this antidote. You're going to have to take this, and your listeners will have to take this secondhand. I did not get, as you know, the, 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 the book is dedicated to Van Til. I didn't get to talk to Van Til personally about his reaction to the book. But my brother Charlie, uh, who all of you know is deceased now, did. He talked to Van Til specifically to, when he was in Philadelphia at one time, uh, for a meeting, ran into Van Til and asked him what he thought. And Van Til applauded the book and said, and his, the quote I have from Charlie is this, in terms especially the fourth chapter, I never thought of it that way. Really? Yes. 
And wow. I just think so. And I think he was he was very and he was very appreciative of it. Huh. Here's a phrase that I like to use, and 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 uh, and uh, Danny Olinger loves this phrase, so I'll give it to you. You've, I think you've had Danny on your show. Oh yeah, yeah. And and uh, is what our task is each generation, I believe, in respect to Christ in the Scripture. And I use this to Van Til as well. Is we must use Van Til upon Van Til. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, advancing Van Til's insights. Yeah, you must. We need to understand what's behind him too. Yeah, what we need to do is is my point that I make is always is we must be free if you are a true Van Tilian. You must be free, and you must be open constantly to what Van Til has given us concerning the starting point of apologetics. That is, there is no compromise with the self-attesting Christ of Scripture. Therefore, Van Til must be criticized himself yep. in terms of we got to out Van Til Van Til on Van Til. You <laughs> see, is the way, another way I like to put it. And the same thing with myself. I would hope that if people read my stuff, the point here is try to rip out the remaining secularism that might be remaining in my own thought. Mm-hmm. Are you free yep. to do that as a Van Tilian? Are you open to allow people to do that? Because the point here is we only have one master. We only have one ultimate apologist, if you wish, in terms of the apologetic arena, and that is the Christ of Scripture. He's giving us his testament. He's given us his revelation. And the best way to understand that revelation is the way that his mentor taught him, and that is a redemptive historical apologetic and that is, and from that, we must continually clean it up, as the way I like to put it. We've got to clean out our secularism. And there's stuff that Van Til needs cleaned up with, too, to make it more consistent. But the point here, too, if I make one last point here, the issue here is that Van Til has taken us in the right direction. So the issue here is where I am fearful sometimes is the terms of people who are Vantillians that want to be critical of Vantill, is they compromise back into secularism, adopting secular ways and synthesizing that with Vantill. No, the point is to be more and more conformed without compromise to the Christ of Scripture. Right. That's right. very good, Bill. Thank you for, for that. Um, if, if I could bring, uh, bring us back around to my initial uh, question and concern, which was, how does the uh, two-age construction of eschatology, the already and the not yet, the heavenly and the earthly, the old eon, the new eon, how is that construction in Paul informing the way in which we do apologetics? Yes, that's a tremendous question, and uh, this has been somewhat uh, of an issue that where the book gets some criticism. And let me explain, and I uh, let me explain what uh, what's going on here. The way I explain to people concerning Van Til and my concerns about Van Til is this: is I'm obsessed, um, and I put it very strongly that way. I am absolutely obsessed with starting point. So the criticism of the book that it somehow that it has received, and in a sense, this is a correct criticism if this is what you're looking for. If you're looking for, okay, how am I going to do this in the apologetic arena in the street in terms of what is my conversation? What is the furniture of my conversation? The book is not going to be helpful that way, that, in that way. The book is what it is trying to do is trying to clarify and drive us back to the starting point of where we, of who we are and where we are in redemptive history concerning the apologetic, apologetic task. And so the point here is this. As a Christian, you must see yourself as you engage the, the arena of ideas or as you walk into the marketplace. 
The point here concerning Van Til's starting point is you must understand that you must never compromise your heavenly union with Christ, even as you are in and as you as you make uh, your apology for for the Christian faith into the present evil age. You must not compromise at all with that. And so your the whole concept here is your union with Christ in the heavenly places, and that must constantly be under review in terms of in terms of its purity, its righteousness, its truthfulness. And therefore, there is no compromise with secularization in, uh, in, the, in, in, in the marketplace uh, with that. Um, uh, you can also ar- argue here, uh, uh, the, you may know in terms of uh, uh, the book that Lane uh, edited and, and Jeff edited uh, with respect to the uh, PNR, their uh, Revelation and Reason in which I have an article about eschatology uh, in there and apologetics. Another aspect is of this, uh, which is not brought out in the book but brought out in this article, is that as you walk into the marketplace of ideas, then you always see yourself in the presence of God. Your apologetic is always because you are now eschatologically, actually, by your faith union with Christ, you are in the heavenly places, you are before Christ, you will not, as you are before Christ and in his presence, you must be, you must be completely conscious of that. You would not deny Christ or compromise Christ with secularism before Christ in the marketplace. So you do not do that. And so you make your stand with that, and that's your identity. You're not a citizen of two ages. You're only the citizen of Christ in the heavenly places, and that is your position. You're basically, what you're doing is you're defending, you're defending Christ and heaven already in the present, in into the present evil age. Right. One thing I found extremely helpful here on page 28, I just wanted to read our listeners this quote. Uh, It says, Thus, at the center of Paul's existence is a Christology oriented toward eschatology. We can say, therefore, that Paul understands the soteriological benefits of a being in Christ to be organically tied to the eschatological work of Christ in time and space. And if apologetics is the discipline of defending that Christ in his person and work, what he has done, defending it to this world, it is necessary that it be drenched with and, and controlled by eschatology. Now, I wanted to ask you, how does that look that, in an Acts 17? Because I think that's a wonderful example, and Dr. Tipton brings this out in, I believe, Revelation and Reason, of what Paul's actually doing and how the two-age eschatology drives him in his method. What does Paul do in Acts 17 on, on Mars Hill, and how is yeah, he actually that, demonstrating your point? Yes, exactly. And that is what is missed by so many. You know how controversial that passage is. Uh, and especially with, for example, the classical apologetic, that is the apologetic, uh, they use that passage constantly as the one in which Paul, therefore, uh, starts uh, in terms of natural world, natural revelation, and moves on to special revelation. Well, in my judgment, that's absolutely absurd. <laughs> right. uh, the reason being is if you look in terms of Acts 17, you will notice that the reason that he is invited to Mars Hill, which is sometimes overlooked by, by the classical method, is, appears in terms of, of, um, in terms of the resurrection, he preached the resurrection, 1718, right. uh, verse 18. He's already presented the gospel. He's already presented the gospel, and then he's confronting them. He's not there, and as a matter of fact, 
the word there concerning when, you know, he sees that they're religious and he's, he's disturbed about that. The Greek term there has the connotation that his, you know, it's, and I have a new King James before me, his spirit was provoked within him. The idea is that he was really angry at their secularism. Exactly. He's not there in a sense saying, oh, how, how nice, at least you got this far, now let me take you the rest of the way. <laughs> in terms of your poets. You know, he has preached the resurrection, he starts the resurrection, and that is it, that's the point. The point is, he's preaching, he's proclaiming the eschatological Christ. In terms of the quote that you gave from my book on page 28, yes. that's what you see in terms of Paul's method. In terms, and throughout Acts, he's going in and preaching, and what inaugurates his attention everywhere he goes is that he has preached the gospel. That's what Van Til had seen, what he understood clearly. So that in Acts 17, when he comes in terms of the Mars Hill, he's not compromised his method. And I will say one other thing and allow your readers, hopefully, to, uh, your listeners, hopefully, they can get Lane's, uh, uh, that book, book, uh, uh-huh. Revelation, uh, and, uh, Reason, which right. is put out by P&R, and read Lane. Lane is much more of an expert on that passage in terms of all the work he's done than I am. So I'll let Lane speak for that. But I will make this point. I want to make this point, and I want to make it, make it very strongly, is the eschaton, the day of salvation, is already here. Yes, yeah. It's begun. There is no room for skepticism anymore. Amen. Absolutely. You see, there's no room for skepticism. You see, so when Paul comes to the end, you see, and there's that term, he started with the resurrection, the sermon ends with the resurrection, in a sense, or at least let's put it this way, the connotation in which brings him to the to Mars Hill is the resurrection, and he ends with the resurrection, and he doesn't give them their their own skepticism or their own philosophical presuppositions in terms of Stoicism and Epicureanism. He doesn't give them the, their day. His point is, today is the day of right. salvation. You must, the day of ignorance is over. Exactly. You must repent and believe in the gospel. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And see, Amen. that is my problem. Oh, boy, I don't... That is my problem, you see. That is my criticism in terms of my review. That's at the heart of my criticism of Keller's book, The Reason for God. Yeah. The age of skepticism is over. In right, terms yeah. of the eschatological hey. conception, God does not hey. allow skepticism to be to be an alternative or an alternative excuse no. not to believe in. Unacceptable. Him. With given the revelation of Christ, like Hebrews one says, we have the fullness of, you know, the exact imprint of His glory. Who has come in history? Who has died and has been raised? There is no longer any excuse. And Paul prosecutes a covenant lawsuit against all those. So I love how this two age works in that. No, the second Adam has come and he's, he's prosecuting a case as God's representative to say, no, you have no excuse. You must repent now. Uh, that, that is the proper response to this Christ. And and wouldn't that, wouldn't that also explain what Jesus says in John 16, when he says, if I had not spoken to the world, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin, that he's not saying there was no sin prior to his coming, obviously, but that because he's come and, and ushered in the, the new age, that it's only heightened man's uh, responsibility. Is that how you understand that, Dr. Dennison? Yeah, that, that, that's, that, that, yeah, that kind of flow. There's a redemptive historical aspect now in which, in which uh, um, all... <laughs> whatever all these nuances are in terms of innocence or the age prior to this, it's all over. It's done. Mm-hmm. No yeah. man, Amen. you know, Romans, Romans 1, in a sense, there is now no excuse for anyone. Right. Absolutely right. no one. Because the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. Yeah, exactly. so, um, the wrath of God is, is, is revealed, right. Yeah. Hey, Bill, um, just in in connection with this, and maybe this will round off our discussion, but um, 
you know, I'm thinking particularly Edmund Clowney's uh, little article he wrote about Van Til called uh, Van Til uh, VDM, uh, Minister of the Word of God. And he, uh, what he does so well, I think, in that article is draw together the connection between what it means to be a minister of the Word of God declaring the heavenly uh, reign of Christ, his words spoken, um, and the end of the age, uh, that we are indeed in this eschatological age where, where Christ has, has revealed himself once and for all. We are simply as ministers to declare that word, that word of the gospel. Uh, we are not to, and here connecting with what you've said already, compromise with the present evil age. And I'm just wondering, uh, Bill, uh, to me, this just confirms why the emergent church is such a sellout and so utterly problematic. What I know of it, uh, I agree 100%. Uh, I agree 100% because just very simplistically, uh, as they have said in terms of what I have, I have read and I've heard them speak myself, one who is a uh, uh, heard a, one who's, who's a strong disciple of, of uh, McLaren and so forth speak. Uh, and basically, you know, the point here is you're attempting, you're attempting to become postmodern to relate to a postmodern age. Exactly. You've already given up. Van Til's point is you've already yep. given up. You've already compromised. Exactly. That's right. And uh, and so you know. The horse is already out of the barn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Close the door and go home and close yeah. up shop at that point. Change your method. Well, I just so wanted I to add a final uh, just comment and maybe get your reaction, Bill. But one of the things I, I love so much about your work, and, and, and it, it fits right into your title at Covenant, it's professor of uh, interdisciplinary studies. And one thing Van Til was very interesting or interested in was describing the, the theological encyclopedia or the relationship between all the different disciplines, uh, particularly at the seminary. We think of systematic theology and apologetics, biblical studies, all and even history, historical theology. But Van Til tied them all together, and he it's really hard sometimes to really parse out when he's doing apologetic work, when he's doing systematic work. And, and the, the wonderful thing about it is it doesn't really matter. And mm-hmm. um, the thing about your book that's so amazing is it ties biblical studies in with apologetics and systematics in a very fluid way that really demonstrates that our God has something to say about everything. And uh, I just really appreciate that about this book, and it might help people to understand as they come to see why in the world is this biblical study subject what does it have to do with apologetics? Apologetics is this separate, you know, hermetically sealed discipline off to the side. But the, the Vantillian tradition rejects that notion. And no, apologetics is related to all these other disciplines. It's not removed from our systematics theology. It's not removed from our biblical studies. In fact, it's intricately linked to all of them. And that's one, you know, as the listener hears this, you need to know that's one of Bill's excellent contributions uh, to scholarship. Yes. And you need to listen to listen to what he's saying here and really soak it in and understand that that's what's unique about Van Tillian apologetics. Yes. Yeah, I have, I have, um, that's, a, that, that's an excellent way of putting it and keeping in mind even for Van Til, uh, the what precedes the that mm-hmm. and the what really does incorporate what is mapped out in systematic theology. And what I, and for your listeners, what we mean by that, that can be a confusing phrase from him, but you have to know what you believe before you go into the marketplace and present that you believe, okay? And that what to believe has to be the content. And for Van Til, the content is three things. The scripture, and understanding that, I've always loved to use the title of Bobbing's book, to describe that and, and, and sort of grasp the Bossian connotation here. And that is, as you walk into the marketplace, you must be, you must be equipped in terms of the philosophy of revelation from Genesis to revelation itself. Secondly, secondly, you must be equipped in terms of what he called systematic theology. So there you have the combination mm-hmm. of systematic theology in that. Now, do not miss. I do make a small point of this, a point that needs to be made stronger. 
remember an apologetic that also includes <laughs> includes systematic theology, which sometimes is not understood, includes ecclesiology. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so that you see this all this kind of thing that apologetics is an independent discipline that just is out there in which you just work and you start to reason and argue with the unbeliever without any reference to Christ in his church, eschatologically, the bride and the bridegroom is not biblical. Right. Okay, so yes. you're putting that together in terms of the interdisciplinary aspect here. And then the last thing for Van Til is those, what is found in terms of Scripture is summarized in the Orthodox and the Reformed Confessions. Mm-hmm. It's those three things that Van Til says you are equipped with, and if you want to say, in a sense, in terms of when you include those things in a kind of interdisciplinary way, uh, goes into the marketplace, that's what you go into your marketplace, that's your equipment. And uh, and that's uh, and because in that way you're definitely equipped uh, in the relationship to Christ and the Spirit, who has worked with not only the Scripture, <laughs> but also in terms of the theological formulations of orthodoxy through the history of the Church. Yeah. Now, if I can, I I I, I do hesitate doing something like this. Uh, but I will put it out for your listeners. Wittgenstock has also published a, a, a book of mine in terms, since you mentioned interdisciplinary studies, a Christian, um, uh, a, a, a Christian approach to interdisciplinary studies. Mm. And the last chapter of that book, uh, is an attempt to bring together Voss and Van Til in terms of the academic liberal arts curriculum, especially in terms of liberal, in terms of interdisciplinary studies. Yeah. And, um, it might be sort of a kind of first. And so for your listeners, I do, uh, you know, I do, uh, uh, um, appreciate anyone who looks at that especially in terms of education, look at their criticisms uh, and, and receive their criticisms about that chapter because it's in a really uh, a kind of first attempt of putting together Voss and Van Til and apply it to an academic discipline, but a discipline that is very broad here, interdisciplinary studies terms of the encyclopedia academia. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. I've got it up here on the computer right now. I'll definitely put that in the bibliography so people can get a hold of that. But, uh, well, Bill, this has been a great discussion. We, we could talk to you all day. In fact, I'd love to talk to you all day, but we have, uh, <laughs> all of us have other things to go do. Yeah, eat lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is food time. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's important, too. Uh, See our family. The apologist does need some food in his belly so he can, <laughs> so he can prosecute covenant lawsuits anyway. <laughs> well, anyway, um, yeah, everyone, I want to just encourage you to go read uh, this book, Paul's Two-Age Construction and Apologetics. From Whippenstock, you can also get a Christian approach to interdisciplinary studies. Uh, and then also, um, uh, you, you can find uh, Bill's work on Rudolf Boltman. I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's a really great book. There's some really great things out there for you to read. And uh, I want to point people back to our website as well, reformforum.org. And you can find uh, show notes there, a bibliography. You can find links to all of our other programs. We've started uh, linking to sermons on the Lord's Day. So if you go check out the Proclaiming Christ program, you'll be able to get edified before you actually go to church. Uh, you uh, can also find other things there, audio versions of Calvin's Institutes, as well as our other programs such as uh, Reform Media Review. We've got all sorts of fun stuff going on. And uh, you can vo- send us a voicemail at 440-97-FORUM if you would like to call, and uh, we'll try to get back to you as soon as we can. We want to thank everybody for listening. We look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>